0: Hello and welcome to episode 361 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today and a huge thank you to Megan Christie for the research and writing of this episode. Have you ever felt determined to gain revenge or even that you must have revenge? It isn't uncommon for any of us, is it? The phenomenon of revenge is one that has intrigued psychologists for years, being able to delve into those intense feelings that can arise in any of us. However, for a small number of people, the desire for revenge can only end in one place. Murder. We all know that stats can be made up or at the very least manipulated. (laughs) Look, I do it most weeks at work. But one set of figures that I looked at tells us that in the UK, in the year ending March 2022, revenge was found to be the motive for over half of all murders. Pretty shocking, huh? And in today's story from the northwest of England, we look at a shocking case of revenge. The episode this week is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide by simplifying selling online and in person so that you can successfully grow your business. Shopify covers all your sales channels and even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, TikTok and Instagram. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning any of those new skills in design or coding. And thanks to 24-7 help and with an extensive business course library, Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. I remember a side business I set up a few years ago when I lived in Devon. It was so difficult to actually sell the product and most importantly get paid. Changing the pricing, I sat at my computer for hours when what I should have been doing is working on my marketing and my sales strategies. A friend of mine recommended Shopify and it completely transformed the business. It just made everything so easy, leaving me to focus on building the business. And what I love about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. It's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash truecrime or lowercase. Just go to shopify.co.uk slash truecrime to take your business to the next level today. shopify.co.uk slash truecrime. Okay, so let's quickly set some context for today's story with our guest of the month and year game. Top of the UK charts was Cotton-Eyed Joe from The Rednecks. Remember that one? In the US, in the top spot, it was Slipknot. Sorry, I meant boys to men. It's an easy mistake to make, isn't it? With On Bended Knee. And in Australia, the Cranberries topped their music charts with Zombie. In the news this month, the final The Farside Cartoon by Gary Larson was published. The murder trial of O.J. Simpson began. And a massive earthquake hit Kobe in Japan killing almost 6,000 people. In the UK, Eric Cantona, assaulted a spectator after being sent off while playing for Man United against Crystal Palace in the Premier League. And finally, in UK true crime news, Fred West, the 53-year-old Gloucester builder, charged with killing 12 women and children, including two of his own daughters, hung himself in his cell at Winston Green Prison in Birmingham. He was due to go on trial this year along with his wife Rosemary, who was charged with 10 murders. So did you guess the month and year? It was January 1995. The seaside town of Morecambe in the northwest of England was booming during the 1930s, with seaside holidays making it a popular destination for families. Did you know it boasted two piers and Europe's largest outdoor swimming pool? It also became the home of Miss Great Britain, between 1956 and 1989. But as time went on and foreign holidays became more accessible, seaside towns like Morecambe began to suffer and fall into decline. The two piers in Morecambe have long since been demolished and their swimming pool was closed. Morecambe did make the news for us true crime fans almost 20 years ago when 21 Chinese cockle pickers who came to the UK for a better life drowned after being caught in an uncoming tide. Do you remember that? But on to our story today. It was the evening of the 23rd of January 1995. An Italian father of one and garage owner, 49-year-old Antonio Morocco, known as Tony, didn't return home. This was really out of character for Tony. He usually went straight home after work. So during the early hours of the next morning when there was still no sign, his concerned wife Geraldine raised the alarm with the police as this was so out of character. As officers went to his business, TM Motors, in the White London Industrial Estate, the reason why Tony had not come home that evening was about to be discovered. Tony's severely beaten body was found. He'd been bludgeoned to death with a monkey wrench. The garage was covered in his blood. It had been a particularly brutal attack. Detective Superintendent Graham Gooch the other one, led 50 detectives in a major investigation to catch the killer. The police soon turned their attention to Tony's work colleague, 29-year-old Paul Sandham, who had also been reported as missing by his family. There were suspicions that maybe the friends had a violent falling out and Paul was maybe now in hiding. Detectives began to look at Paul's background in more detail, discovering that growing up he attended the Air Cadets, and eventually joined the Royal Air Force when he was 19, where he became a radar technician based in Western Supermare, near Bristol. He was then posted to a base near Scarborough in the northeast, where he met his soon-to-be wife. After leaving the RAF, Paul moved to near Morecambe. During the 1980s, Paul was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, but six weeks before he disappeared, he was given the amazing news that his cancer was under control. However, a grisly development in the case quashed the early theory that Paul could somehow have been involved. His body was found discarded in a field close to Powderhouse Lane, which was about a mile from the garage. It was a remote spot and Paul had been stabbed over 40 times. Now the police were on the hunt for a double killer. What could possibly be the motive? Both men were family men, well-liked, nice people. Had it been robbery? After all, a few hundred pounds and a gold chain that Tony wore all the time had vanished. But surely no one would have carried out two such gruesome murders just for that small amount. Or was there another motive? Detectives pieced together what had happened to the men on the day of their deaths. They believed the killer had asked Paul to take him on a test drive and then he stabbed him to death when they reached a remote part and then he returned to the garage in the car where he killed Tony. Soil discovered on the driver's side of a Toyota in the garage matched the soil in the field where Paul's body was found. But again, the question comes up, doesn't it? Why? Why were they killed? During the initial investigation, detectives were desperate for leads, and they felt they could potentially get one if they could establish whether there was a getaway vehicle involved. A witness did come forward and remembered seeing a push bike propped up against the wall of TM Motors. With the White Lund industrial estate being tucked away, it led detectives to think that maybe the killer had known the area well and it suggested that the killer, assuming it was just one person, had maybe been to the garage before. A colleague at the garage helped the police see if any vehicles had been taken and they quickly discovered that one was missing an MG Metro was missing from the garage, along with all the car's documentation. Detective Superintendent Gooch addressed the public, saying, This meant it was no panic killing. After murdering Tony, the killer had selected the most expensive car in the garage and then calmly searched for the documents. He'd even moved other cars out of the way to get at the Metro. With this new break in the case, detectives knew it was essential that they traced this car. And it also posed another potential motive. Maybe the killer was in the motor trade, and the murders were maybe due to some form of a business dispute. Detectives ran an HPI check, which helps car buyers see a comprehensive history of the vehicle, and can also flag whether the car had been stolen. This check flagged that a car dealer in Erith in southeast London had run a check on the car. Whilst this information was accurate. The killer had also given false details to the buyer. Detective Superintendent Gooch said, The dealer told us he'd traded another car for the Metro. The description he gave us was good, but the details he'd been given by the man with the Metro proved to be false. So once again, hopes of a quick resolution were dashed. An eagle-eyed detective in Kent and the television show Crime Watch was about to give detectives in Morecambe another lead. Prior to the murders on the 16th of January, Crimewatch showed the CCTV footage of a man robbing a jewellery shop in Surrey where he committed horrific acts of violence towards the female employees. A viewer called in and identified the man as 24-year-old Terry Clifton, who was originally from London but had moved to Morecambe where he attended Morecambe High School. While some people said that Terry had just fallen into the wrong crowd, Others stated that Terry himself was the bad influence on others. And his violent nature was very apparent growing up. Unbelievably, at one stage, he tied up his own dad and tortured him. I think that gives us an insight into the sort of man we're talking about here. Around the same time, Kent Detective Richard Cullen was investigating the robbery of a jewellery shop in his county. He began to investigate Clifton, and he believed the robberies could be connected. The detective learned that Terry Clifton had links with the Lancashire area and his last known address was in Erith. After recalling the recent murders in Lancashire and the metro car linked to the Erith dealer, the Kent detective contacted the instant room in Morecambe. The description matched the one given by the Erith car dealer. Now, this was a major breakthrough for the police as they now knew the identity of the man they suspected of killing both men. The investigation continued to pick up pace and momentum once detectives asked for more information about Terry Clifton. A woman who knew him walked into a Morecambe police station and told officers that Clifton was in the area around the time that Tony and Paul were murdered. The gold necklace that was stolen from Tony's body was traced to a friend of Clifton's who reportedly had bought it from him. But despite all this information coming through, Clifton proved very slippery and elusive and always managed to be one step ahead of the police by switching cars, changing his address and giving false names. On the 28th of February 1995, police arrived at a 7th floor apartment in Erith to question Clifton's girlfriend. To their surprise, as the door opened, they were greeted by Clifton, holding a sawn-off shotgun. He then scaled down each balcony to escape, dropping a total of 100 feet, which led to the media predictably dubbing him Spider-Man. Following his escape, the police felt that he would stay close to areas he knew and they watched over all the houses he was linked to and began searching through the records of cars he had bought and sold. In early March of the same year, the police tracked down a man who'd purchased a Sierra from Clifton and he told police that Clifton was now driving a Ferrari, sorry, a Montego. With this new information spreading across the police force, two officers who were watching a house in Erith spotted a man leaving and getting into a Montego. This man was Clifton. After parking on a nearby street, armed officers arrested him, and he did not resist arrest. It was discovered that Clifton had done business with TM Motors on the New Year's Eve of 1994, when he travelled up from London to Morecambe to visit friends and family. He exchanged a BMW for a Honda Prelude there. There wasn't much money in the deal, but Clifton had asked Tony for a fiver to fill up the car with petrol. When Clifton had returned later on in the month, he asked to take another car on a test drive, to which Paul agreed and handed him the keys. But unbeknown to Paul, Clifton was not interested in buying the car and was planning to murder him. Once the two men reached the secluded location, Clifton launched a frenzied knife attack. When Clifton drove back to the garage, he drove through the doors, smashed the desk and then strangled, stabbed and beat Tony to death. So just what was the motive for such excessive violence? Detectives believe that Clifton may have felt he'd been ripped off on the previous deal or maybe he saw the money that Tony carried about him. Either way, it appeared that greed was at the heart of this crime. It was now about proving that Clifton was responsible and building up enough of a case to bring about a conviction. Detectives appealed again for more information about Terry Clifton. More witnesses came forward and described how they noticed that Clifton had an injured hand towards the end of January. Such an injury would be plausible following the frenzied nature of the assault. This revelation led detectives to think that if Clifton had injured his hand, there would be his DNA at the crime scene. And due to this, forensic scientists re-examined the clothing of both victims and found blood traces in Tony's trouser pockets. It was not Tony's blood, it was Clifton's. Their matching DNA now gave the police a solid case against Clifton. If you needed more proof of Clifton's volatile and violent nature, it didn't take long to once more come to the fore. Prior to a remand appearance at Lancaster Magistrate's Court, Clifton had asked to speak with his lawyer, Alistair Harper. As Alistair made his way to the cell, Clifton took him hostage and held a sharpened metal object against his throat. This hostage situation lasted 21 hours and during the ordeal, Clifton announced he had converted to Islam and wanted a Muslim holy man to mediate. Fearing for the lawyer's safety, specially trained officers barged into the cell, and the standoff came to an end with everybody unhurt. The leading policeman told the media, It was always our strategy to negotiate a peaceful release. That was the way it was going to go until the situation became very delicate. We decided then it was appropriate to take another form of action. We put in a specially trained unit of three men to effect Mr Harper's release. He's been released and has no injuries but he's obviously very shaken. He's had a horrendous time in there. Prior to his trial in 1997 at Preston Crown Court Clifton sacked his lawyers and chose to defend himself. I think we all know from previous podcasts just how well this strategy always works. However, as his trial began Clifton refused to leave his cell but having pled not guilty at an earlier hearing the judge allowed the trial to go ahead. After two weeks the jury found Terry Clifton guilty of murder and it took eight police officers over half an hour to bring the killer into the courtroom to receive his life sentence. Tony's widow Geraldine was at court to see her husband's killer be put behind bars but Paul's wife C was unable to face the horrifying memories and moved out of Lancashire before the trial began. Detective Superintendent Graham Gooch said, Clifton is an extremely dangerous man with a long record of violence. I've no doubt if he were ever released he'd do the same thing again. He was an absolutely evil man, there's no two ways about it. He wasn't stupid, he was calculated and just plain nasty. According to the detective, the killer had not shown any remorse for the two murders. With the callous nature of the killings and the lack of remorse, could we define Clifton as a psychopath? So whilst psychopath is not an official diagnosis, we often hear it used, don't we? And it's used in clinical and legal settings to describe an individual as antisocial, egocentric and showing a lack of empathy and remorse. It seems to fit. Another term often bandied around can certainly be attached to this story, and that's overkill. The term overkill is when a perpetrator inflicts injuries beyond what is needed to kill a human. When we look at Paul's injuries, he sustained over 40 stab wounds, and Tony was beaten so badly that his blood was splattered all over the garage. It certainly can be argued that Clifton committed acts of overkill on both of his victims. Notorious British serial killer Jack the Ripper was known for his murders of several women in Whitechapel where the killer inflicted an excessive number of fatal wounds on his victims, which some suggest is a way you could have had complete control. In more recent years we've seen other examples such as, you remember the case, 15-year-old James Fairweather, who committed the so-called Colchester murders, he stabbed his first victim, James Atfield, over 100 times. And his second victim, Nahid Armenia, also suffered horrific injuries far in excess of what was actually needed to extinguish human life. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's now almost 30 years ago that Antonio Marocco, a like business owner, and Paul Sandem, his partner in the business who was recovering from cancer, were murdered in Morecambe. A clear motive behind these senseless killings has not yet been positively discovered. We often criticise the police on this podcast, but in this case they did a fantastic job. It was real old-fashioned police work. But let's return again to that question of motive. Was it an act of revenge for a faulty car? Or was it due to financial gain after seeing hard-earned money in the garage? Both seem really weak motives, right? but it's hard to understand how a man like Clifton ticks. We may never discover his real intentions behind these murders, but surely he isn't the sort of man who should ever be released from prison. But enough of him, enough of Clifton as he rots away in his cell. Our thoughts as we finish the episode today lie firmly with the family and friends of Paul and Tony. Once again on this podcast, just two men living their daily lives with their families and they had the misfortune to cross paths with Clifton and it cost them both their lives. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group and join over 91,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. We really do. And you would be very welcome. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com for bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content. New bonus episode is coming purely for Patreon supporters just this week. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Carla Stewart, Frankie Warsfold, and Nicole Jones. Your support is so appreciated. So please come and join us for less than a cup of coffee a month, cancel at any time, just head to Patreon, that's P A T R E O N, dot com slash UK True Crime. Okay, so that's all for me, the host of the UK's 37th most popular and non award winning True Crime podcast for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday, please do take it easy and remember, despite all the others, <laughs> it's always the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.